Move at a Time, the U.S. Chess Podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area, one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess Podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which I go more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org or by subscribing via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Dr. Alexi Root is our guest today on this October edition of One Move at a Time. She holds the title of WIM and was the 1989 U.S. Women's Champion. Before earning her Ph.D. in education, she taught high school social studies in English and ran the school's chess club. She has written seven books on chess and education. Some of those are available at USCF Sales, and all are available on Amazon. She teaches online courses about chess and education for the University of Texas at Dallas. The courses have been taken by students all over the world. She has been a longtime writer for Chess Life, Chess Life Kids, and CLO, and she seems naturally drawn to the topics that speak directly to our U.S. Chess mission statement. Welcome to the show, Alexi. Thank you, Dan. As I'm reading that, and I say 1989 U.S. Women's Champion, that is means we are in your 30th anniversary year. Uh, I imagine that's a surprising number for you. Yeah, until you said that, I hadn't really thought about how long ago that was, but yes, 30 years. Because the last 10 years of U.S. championship events have have been uh, just, the conditions have been world-class for all the players, thanks to our friends at the St. Louis Chess Club, talk about a bit about the conditions of the event 30 years ago. Well, they were excellent. And I want to give credit to Dr. Spencer Matthews and Spartanburg uh, South Carolina Converse College, which hosted us. Uh, I can't say enough positive about the experience and about uh, Converse College and South uh, Converse, Converse College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. So, uh, however, I'm always excited to hear about St. Louis and the wonderful things that are being done at the St. Louis Chess Club, and definitely it's. A dream of mine to somehow become involved with that club. Yeah, I know that. Any, I think anybody that has a chance to to associate themselves with with St. Louis loves to do so. Talk a bit about the evolution of being a chess player in the in the intervening three decades. You know, obviously you had no chess base or internet. Uh, how how did you go about preparing for that championship event? Well, that had that was already my fourth time playing in the U.S. Women's Chess Championship. I played in 1981 when I was one of the two youngest players in it that year. I had, uh, in the summer of 81, I turned 16, and also Baraka Shabazz, uh, African-American young lady, was 16. So we were the two youngest players in 1981. So that was my first championship. And then I played in 84, 
and 86. And that, those were actually consecutive years for the championship because it wasn't held every year. And then I didn't qualify in 88. I wasn't high enough rated. But my so my fourth time was 1989. And so what I'm saying is I had the games of my own from playing against some of these women in previous years. And then thanks to magazines like Chess Life, I had some of their games from other times in their chess playing careers that I could look at. I think it goes without saying that to win a national championship, you must have a very highly developed competitive instinct. So I'm curious how that manifests itself in other areas of your life, such as academia. That's a great question. I actually went to college early because of my competitive streak. And would you like the backstory on that? Oh, absolutely. All right. It's actually also in my first book, Children in Chess, A Guide for Educators. I share this story. But I was playing in the 1978 U.S. Junior Open, which was held at the University of Washington in Seattle. And only one other girl was playing. And her name was Sharon Monahan. And then I think there were like 88 boys. So two girls, 88 boys, U.S. Junior Open, 1978. And... I talked to Sharon, and I thought she said that she was going to go to college next year. And so I'm like, well, wait a minute. I can beat Sharon at chess. I should get to go to college, too. So I came home from that tournament, and I told my parents, I want to go to college. So I ended up starting at university in the fall of 79 when I was 14 years old. But the... uh, Funny follow-up is I ran into Sharon later, and turned out I had heard her wrong about when she was going. She was not starting in the fall of 78. She was also starting in the fall of 79 or something. So basically, I went to college early because I was very competitive and heard someone wrong. <laughs> no, that, that's good. And, uh, who, who are more cutthroat, titled players or PhDs? Wow. I hadn't expected that question. <laughs> I would say... Probably titled players because it's just more obvious in chess that you're playing to win because you're right there playing a game and trying to win. Whereas in academia, and now I am not on tenure track, so maybe I would feel differently if I were on tenure track and in that more competitive scene where you have to publish articles to survive, maybe then I would have answered it differently. But at least from my perspective as a halftime lecturer, people have been very uh, pleasant and non-competitive and cooperative and doing projects together in, in research and writing, maybe a little bit more than chess. Okay. Well, fair enough. And and as soon as I asked the question, I thought, well, certainly chess is very much that zero-sum game of uh, win or lose. So uh, it makes more sense that it makes perfect sense that you answered that way. Um, and let's transition into the work that you are doing at UT Dallas, uh, especially your online courses. I, I still think that despite the uh, just how much the internet is part of everybody's lives, people still don't really think of college coursework being done online, but uh, you've made this a specialty of yours. That's right. Actually, I've been teaching online since 2001, 
So that's a long time. I began at the University of Texas at Dallas, or UT Dallas, as you said, in 1999. But the first couple years I was there, I taught a curriculum course on Saturday. I supervised student teachers. I wasn't involved with chess, except as a recruiter for the UT Dallas chess team under Dr. Tim Redman, the founder of the UT Dallas chess program. But Tim Redman and I came up with a grant proposal for an institution called UT Telecampus, which no longer exists, but it used to oversee all online courses in UT system schools, such as UT Austin, UT Dallas, at that time UT Brownsville, which is now UT Rio Grande Valley. In any case, we were successful and we ended up with $50,000 in grant money to develop courses about the game of chess and education. And initially I taught one part of the courses and Dr. Tim Redmond taught the other. And now I teach all the courses, but they are rigorous courses. They are for three hours of college credit, just like if you were taking a math course or an English course, you get the same amount of credit. And my background, my PhD is in education. So the one of the courses I teach is about writing lesson plans that include chess and educational goals. And then the other course I teach is about designing a entire chess program. Now, we don't have time to talk about all your your chess books, uh, so I'm, I'll, I'll ask you uh, what's probably a difficult question. Wh- which is your favorite of your seven chess book babies? Oh, my goodness. Hmm. Well, I have to say a very interesting one to write was Read, Write, Checkmate, Enrich Literacy with Chess Activities because I was volunteering at my son's middle school and I taught a course. I wasn't paid. I was volunteering, but I taught uh, during what was their advisory period, which was kind of like homeroom. So I was teaching chess three times a week in this homeroom and the other two times were study skills for those students. So I wanted to come up with a project. Oh, and by the way, the students could choose which advisory they wanted to be in. So they could be in a, you know, journalism advisory or a PE advisory, but mine was chess. And incidentally, I said, if you're going to give me one girl, please give me two. So I had 20 boys and two girls in my class and we wrote a chess book as our project for the year and so that project of writing a chess book is sort of the book within a book for read write checkmate and i thought that was pretty interesting yeah no good good yeah i i I almost felt like i was asking you you know which of your children is your favorite (laughs) (laughs) well yeah don't ask that 
Most people who uh, know your name are going to know you uh, from your extensive writing background for our print and digital publications at U.S. Chess. So you sent me a list of uh, some of your favorite or more memorable articles. And as I mentioned in in the introduction, these all speak to our mission statement at U.S. Chess. So I I think it would be fun to take this trip down memory lane. And uh, I'll also... Let everybody, our listeners, know that I will have uh, a list of these articles in our show notes when when this podcast is live on uschess.org. And the the first article we're going to talk about, it goes back to September 1990, uh, while you were the reigning U.S. women's champion. And it was part of our membership drive. Uh, It was titled, Be Proud to Be a Chess Player, Introduce Others to USCF. Uh, What are your memories of this article? Well, just a clarification, I'm not sure I was still the reigning champion in September of 1990. I, I won it in the summer of 89, and I think that we'd already had a 1990 championship that I hadn't won, but I don't, I, I'd have to look for sure on the dates. I think they just listed me as the 1989 champion, so, because, you know, there's a delay, there's a delay in uh, there's a delay in publication, uh, as you know, because you were my editor for so many of my articles that I wrote for Chess Life. Thankfully, so I enjoyed working with you. But as you know, you have to turn in your article a couple months early. So I probably was still champion when I turned it in. But then when it got published in September 1990, I think my successor uh, was champion, uh, champion rather than me. But in any case. The reason I got the chance to write an article was because I had that U.S. women's title and there was a membership drive to try to bring in everyone, bring in two new members. U plus two, I think, was the theme. And I had one theme for that article, which I still think is an awesome idea. And that is when you roll your chessboard, your vinyl chess mat, roll it so that the squares show outward And then as you're walking around, people are like, what's that? And you tell them, oh, this is a chess board, and you can tell them about U.S. chess. So that was the theme of that article. And one thing that jumps out about this article is, uh, uh, you know what, actually, let me me read uh, directly from it. Because I believe that chess has the power to make women as well as men happy, I make a special effort to recruit women to USCF membership. Currently, female membership makes up only 4% of the organization. So women in chess was you know, still an issue 30 years ago. Uh, we're certainly taking much more direct action now. And in fact, I will shout out to our sister podcast, uh, Ladies Night, hosted by uh, Jennifer Shahadi, our women's program director. And we're now up to 14% of the membership, which is still a, shows we have a long way to go. Well, certainly, I agree with the shout out to Jennifer Shahadi and the Women's Chess Program Director that she is and to the Women's Chess Committee. It's amazing all that's being done. And for a while, back in the old days, I was U.S. Chess Women's Committee Chair. And it's exciting that some of the ideas, such as regional women's championships, which I got funded at the rate of $200 per region per year, if an organizer applied for that, are now just grown beyond that. And another thing I got passed by the delegates was a 
uh, jump in the prize fund from 1994. The prize fund for the U.S. Women's Championship was 5000 In 1995, the prize fund jumped, doubled to 10000 and I was a part of that. So, but yet we're so far beyond that that it's very exciting to see. When were you uh, Women's Committee Chair? I was off and on for a while there in the 1990s, so I don't have those exact dates, sorry. No, okay. Um, Now, moving to the April 2002 issue of Chess Life, uh, this kind of speaks uh, directly to, you you had just started at UTD a few years earlier, based on what you said before. Uh, This article is titled UMBC, which is University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and UT Dallas, co-champs at 2001 Pan Ams. Right. As I mentioned when I sent that article to you, it was significant in that I hadn't written an article for Chess Life since 1990. And I think I didn't have a platform once I was no longer U.S. Women's Chess Champion. I guess I didn't have the audience or clout or attention of U.S. chess to be writing. However, when I started at University of Texas at Dallas, Dr. Tim Redman already had a tradition of writing about UT Dallas for Chess Life. And he graciously encouraged me to write some of the articles about UT Dallas for Chess Life. And that's really how I got started back writing for Chess Life is writing about UT Dallas. And there's lots to write about because UT Dallas has given hundreds of thousands of dollars in scholarships to chess players. UT Dallas puts on the Chess Educator of the Year every February, gives a generous honorarium to that winner. And it's someone of prominence in US chess. This last year it was Elizabeth Spiegel, who is known for being the chess coach at IS-318, the subject of Brooklyn Castle. And UT Dallas has an annual match with a university in Yugoslavia called the Transatlantic Cup, and I write about that. So there's just always something to write about with UT Dallas, and I really credit that as the way I got back into being able to write for Chess Life. Speaking of the reach of UT Dallas, I'm I'm staring at a object on my desk right here. It's a green bishop that pulls apart to become a thumb drive that I got from uh, Jim Stallings that has and it has the UTD uh, chess team logo on it. Yes, and shout out to Jim Stallings who is the current chess program director for University of Texas at Dallas. He succeeded Tim Redman in when Tim left that part of his UT Dallas duties. He's still a professor of literary studies, but Jim took over the chess directorship in 2006 after Dr. Redman had been running it for 10 years. And Redman founded it in 1996 after starting a chess club in 1995. In 1996, was when the first chess scholars arrived on campus, the first students on scholarship for chess. So yes, Jim Stallings uh, started in 2006, and he has a background in marketing. So your bishop, thumb drive, or USB, what do they call them, flash drives? In any case, the chessmen shaped 
Chessman-shaped USB drives or flash drives are one of his great ideas, and there's a new one every year. So if you were really ambitious, Dan, you would collect a whole chess set because there's been knights <laughs> and kings and queens, and you already have the bishop. And what it has on it is obviously space for you to store your own documents and photos, but it has a video of our current UT Dallas chess team. That's why there's a new one every year. Well, I just went from very proud of my little bishop here to very sad that I don't have all the other pieces. Well, that just shows you need to stay friendly with UT Dallas, come visit <laughs> us, and collect a whole set. <laughs> but okay. yes, it's exciting. Yeah, And the bishop is one that I don't have, so you're a step ahead of me. I think I have a knight and a queen, because you know, I, I, I get them maybe if they're left over, but uh, I'm obviously not the main target audience for this marketing. So jumping to 2006, the October 2006 issue, it's an article that you describe as perhaps your favorite article that you've written for Chess Life ever. It's called The Paperboy and the Chess Master. I think it's worth you sharing this story and giving us an update on it. Absolutely. The Paperboy and the Chess Master was an outgrowth of my chatting on Internet Chess Club with Jeff Ashton, who's a national master that graduated from UT Dallas in 2003. But for some reason, we were talking about how he started in chess, you know, typing back and forth over Internet Chess Club. And he told me this amazing story of how he started chess because he delivered newspapers to Fred Lindsay, who's a senior master in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I thought it, it, it was like a fairy tale, and I would just ask Jeff more and more questions, and then I thought, this story needs to be published. So I approached you, because at the time you were editor of Chess Life, and you agreed, and thus we have the story. Yeah, I was actually a brand new editor at that time, and I remember thinking, boy, if, if people are going to keep bringing me stories like this, of this quality and this interest, uh, my job's going to be easy. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. And Jeff Ashton, at the time that article was written, 2006, was a chess teacher in Houston, Texas, which after he had graduated in 2003, three different schools had recruited him to teach after school at their chess programs, but he tells me even now the article is so important to him, he gives it partial credit for him making the jump in 2008 to founding Panda Chess Academy, which has now been in the same building since 2008 and is a kids-only scholastic chess club in Houston, Texas, which, by the way, Melinda Matthews, the current editor of Chess Life, has given me the go-ahead to write about Panda Chess Academy, and that'll be the first time I've written about Jeff since 2006. But the theme of the article I'm writing, it's a first moves article, I would really like to get your listeners' help on, and that's the theme of how does your chess club reach out to different ages? And Jeff's club had never had any adults playing a game of chess in it ever. The parents were just standing around and the kids were the only ones playing chess. But recently he had the opportunity to host Grandmaster Nigel Short for a lecture and simultaneous exhibition. And that simul was actually the first time an adult had played a chess game in the club because he let adults play against Short as well as children. So that's 
become a little bit of a turning point for him, and he's, I'm going to write about his next idea for adults and children to interact over a chessboard at his Panda Chess Academy, as opposed to what he has been doing, which has been very successful, and that's tournaments, camps, and lessons just for children. So, listeners, if you do want to help Alexi with this article, you you can write to letter. I'm sorry, podcast at uschess.org, and I will forward it on to Alexi. Uh, Alexi, why don't you restate again exactly what you're looking for? Well, thank you. I will try to restate more clearly. I'm going to mostly write about Panda Chess Academy, but I'm envisioning a sidebar where your listeners tell me how their chess club creates events that reach out to different age groups because there's a stereotype that young chess players like certain things, maybe fast time controls and older chess players don't like losing to young chess players. So how do you create tournaments or lectures or simuls or special events, maybe film screenings that appeal to all ages to get all ages together in chess in your club? And I'm, Really interested to hear what your listeners have to say. Maybe they do parent-child tournaments. Maybe they do something like a simul where all ages play against a titled player. So I'm hoping to highlight several different clubs in this sidebar with their great ideas of how they're appealing to the underage 12 group of people and to uh, middle-aged people like you and me. And uh, again, uh, listeners, write with your feedback to podcast at uschess.org, and I will forward on all responses to Alexi. That would be great, and maybe we can add it to the show notes. Uh, My deadline is going to be December 1st. This will be a February 2020 article. So they have time to get a hold of me between now and December 1st, and I would love to showcase different clubs around the country because... We do tend to hear, I don't think most people have heard of Panda Chess Academy in Houston, Texas. We hear more about some of the very big and famous clubs, but like, for example, Mechanics Institute in San Francisco and Marshall Chess Club in New York. And I love hearing about them, but I think, and of course, St. Louis Chess Club, but I think there's also other chess clubs doing innovative things that it would be nice to highlight in this first moves column in in chess life. And I'm sure this will be covered in your column, but let's go ahead and ask the question now. Uh, why is it called the Panda Chess Club? Panda Chess Academy. It's right on the edge of Chinatown and pandas are black and white. So I think Jeff thought those two things might appeal. And pandas are cute, so who wouldn't <laughs> want to be a part of a Panda Chess Academy? However, those are my my memories from talking with him a while back. I haven't actually recently asked him that question, so I might ask him to clarify that in the article. Good question, though. Right. Perhaps the snack of choice there is bamboo. Maybe. I'll have to ask. That's a great, great idea. Um, So jumping to 2011, the December issue, uh, you wrote uh, an article that very squarely comes home for U.S. Chess as we have a very active um, access-enabled committee uh, chaired by Janelle Losoff, and your article is Chess with Special Needs Adults. Um, and in it, you, you're specifically writing about your work with uh, adults with mental disabilities. Yes. The adults I worked with were coming to the Denton Public Library 
once a week, they were transported from a state school where they lived to the library for enrichment. And I had already been volunteering at the Denton Public Library teaching classes about the fine arts and chess, music and chess, dance and chess, theater and chess. So I was already volunteering teaching those classes, which ended up being, and here I get to mention another one of my books, The Living Chess Game, Fine Arts Activities for Kids 9 to 14. So I was volunteering with those kids, and Carmen Grant, a librarian, with Denton Public Library, asked me if I would be interested in teaching chess to special needs adults, since I was already there volunteering anyway. And I said yes, and the article is about those those classes. You know, it, it, there's so many different ways for people to enjoy chess, you know, tournament chess, reading about it, blitz, bug house, etc. Uh, that, that jumped out at me in this because, you know, people wonder how can adults with, say, mental uh, uh, disabilities uh, really play a full game of chess? And the point of your article is not that they're going to play a full game of chess, but there's ways to use chess to enhance the abilities they do have. That's right. And I learned a lot from teaching that class, and I'm sure that I need to learn a lot more. And I'm actually querying, asking Melinda, can I write about chess and disabilities for a future issue that's planned for chess life? Because the angle that really interests me for that future issue is there seems to be two different camps about Uh, people with different abilities in chess. One is, as Beatrice Marinello recently did in New York, there was an international tournament for youths with disabilities where they were featured on CNN, this tournament that was just for children with disabilities. But then there's another idea or another camp that says inclusion is the most important goal to make tournaments accessible. So I'm wondering, can you have both? Can you have tournaments where children or adults with disabilities play their own tournament, as well as have accessible tournaments where they can join with all other chess players to play? So that's the article that I'm hoping I can write. So I think it's an interesting question. But that made me forget your question, and I apologize. What was your question? So uh, talk a bit about how these uh, these students were using chess, because they were not using it. They weren't learning the full rules of the game. They weren't playing full games of chess. But you had them using various activities, using chess boards and chess pieces that enhance the abilities they already do have. Yes, that's a very important question, and I'm sorry I got away from that. But... I think that particular group of adults would definitely need a separate chess activity because of their severe limitations mentally and in some cases physically as well. Uh, Not that physical makes that much of a difference, but for example, I wanted them to show with their arms or their, what vertical was to make an arm gesture to, show vertical, which is, of course, part of a rook's move, and I wanted to try to make it more concrete, move your arm up and down to show vertical. And 
very few of the students would do that, or in some cases could do that. And Carmen mentioned that large motor skills can be affected in some cases. So the things that you could still get out of chess, or at least that these men and women, adults who lived in a state school could still get out of chess are things like taking turns, which is important. And I have an activity in my book, Thinking with Chess, where I had children classify the chessmen by sorting them into groups that made sense to the children. And then I tried that activity with these adults. And it was interesting to see how they classified the chessmen. You know, do you sort all the white chessmen into one pile? Do you sort all the black chessmen into a different pile? How do you verbalize your reasons for classifying in these ways? And classifying, of course, is a skill that we need to develop even beyond chess. How do we decide what categories to put items in? And how do we decide what things go together? So it, it was interesting to adapt that activity to those adults, and I think it was useful. And at the end of the article, I, I know I quoted the librarian about what she thought chess was doing for these adults. Yeah, and it, it, it really jumps out at me because we have so many articles uh, about, you know, access-enabled issues, you know, uh, people who are in wheelchairs and such, but mental disabilities has, have, this is really the only article I can remember us printing in Chess Life about that topic. Right, and if you have the article in front of you, which I do not have the article in front of me, can you re read to our listeners what the librarian said at the end? Because I remember it was, it made me feel that my volunteering had been worthwhile, even though they did not ever come close to playing a full game of chess. Okay, here's the quote. Carmen said, I think chess is improving the group's motor, recall, and thinking skills. The, the Lions challenge was challenging and fun and allowed the group to learn basic strategy. I also think the group is learning that chess can be fun. Oh, and she actually mentioned another challenge which I had done with children initially and then adapted for these adults, and that is to basically play tic-tac-toe using the chessmen as markers. So, for example, if you have the white chessmen, you might put a white rook on e2, and then your next goal might be to place a white bishop on e3 and a white queen on e4, and then then you have three in a row. You know, so you've. But obviously, your opponent tries to block. So when you put that white rook on e2 they're going to put a black pawn on E3. So you're using the chessmen not as chessmen, but just as X's and O's. But when children did the activity, they would also call out, I'm putting a rook on E2. So it was a way to remind them, oh, this is the name of the chessmen, and this is the square I'm putting it on for children who are just learning what the names of chessmen are and what notation it is. And again, this, this challenge is in thinking with chess, uh, which was my sixth book. So it was interesting to also teach this activity with the adults and see them try to get three in a row 
or four in a row, whatever the goal was. And for more on accessibility issues, I'd like to refer listeners to our August edition of One Move at a Time. When I, my guest was Dr. Martha Underwood, who is on the U.S. Chess Accessibility Committee, and we talked more about these issues. That is available in our archive section. And that actually is my favorite one of your podcasts. Oh, and thank you. the reason the reason it is is because. If I listen to a podcast and it gives me an idea for an article, which I kind of already shared what my idea for an article was, is Martha Underwood talks about accessibility a lot, and Beatrice Marinello had this separate tournament which got the attention of CNN, and I would love to interview Martha Underwood and Beatrice Marinello and get those two viewpoints clarified for Chess Life readers. So that that was definitely... Uh, my favorite episode, and I've listened to every U.S. Chess podcast, not just yours, which, uh, but also Jennifer Shahade's podcast, and Pete Karangayas, I don't know how to say his last name, but his Chess Underground podcast, I've also listened to all those, so I've listened to all the Ladies' Night and all the Chess Undergrounds, as well as all the cover stories with Chess Life, and all the One Move at a Time podcast, so it's a great honor to actually be on a podcast after listening to all of them. Yeah, well, well, thank you. And and Pete's last name is spelled Carian or pronounced Carianus, and he is our assistant national events director. Say it again for me one more time, because then I'll maybe learn it. <laughs> Carianus. The G is Carianus. silent. Yeah, the G is silent. Carianus. Okay. Yes, it's one of those names where I look at it and I want to say it the wrong way. So Carianus. But uh, yeah, I definitely enjoy all the U.S. Chess podcasts and recommend those who haven't to go back in the archives, which you just click on the word podcast and all the archives and show descriptions are there. So it's very easy to catch up if you haven't heard them all already. We just talked about Dr. Martha Underwood. And of course, you have your PhD. And you indicated that another article you were interested in talking about was not one that you had written, but about another uh, person that holds a PhD. And that's Dr. Heather Fluelling, who did participated in our My Best Move column in the October 2014 issue of Chess Life. Well, I'm just very honored that Dr. Heather Fluelling mentioned me as a mentor to her. So that's why I brought it up as an article I wanted to talk about. I was taught her uh, private chess lessons when I lived in Austin, Texas. So she was in high school when I was her chess teacher. And I'm, I'm just, as I say, very honored that she would mention me as an important influence in her life because she's had a comet named after her. She's an astrophysicist, and I admire her greatly. Let me read what she wrote about you. Um, I, I feel like the support of my family and role models, such as Alexi Root, gave me what I needed to become a scientist and a chess player. Yes, I mean... I'm very touched that she included me in her article. So uh, what, a, what a nice thing to do. And we were talking about the, uh, the, the competitive streaks of uh, uh, the education world versus chess players. I, I, I know from following her over the years on Facebook uh, that Dr. Fluelling has, has written about some of the issues of, of being a woman, in, not only in the chess world, but in the scientific community itself. She has. She's been a leader in that. And so I would... Definitely recommend people look her up, and if they want to learn about women in science, and especially women in astronomy, which is a 
male-dominated field. Mm, yes. Now, taking a, a a wild left turn on the types of articles you've written, um, in the November 2016 issue of Chess Life, you wrote about chess pets, and you talk about some of our top players uh, and other chess world personalities and their pets. And we have lots of cute little kitty uh, and bunny pictures. Absolutely. And actually, as we're doing this podcast, my right hand is petting my rabbit, Denise, spelled D-E-N-I-S. He is a seven and a half year old rescued rabbit. I adopted him when he was two and a half from an animal shelter in this area. And so I'm a big fan of combining podcasting and petting your animal, which you had told me before we went on the air that unfortunately you cannot have your dog in the room during a podcast because she might bark, but I do not have that problem with my rabbit. So he's getting petted as we're talking, but I enjoyed very much talking about with other chess players about how important their pets are to them and how people seem to like cats a lot. And I think it's probably because if you're trying to study chess and pet your pet at the same time, maybe a cat is more sedentary than I know your dog's very athletic, may not want to sit still and study chess with you like Wesley So's cats sat still and studied chess with him. But from that article, Dr. Christopher Chabri, and I don't know if I'm saying his last name right, it's C-H-A-B-R-I-S, but Dr. Christopher Chabri tells me every time we interact that it means so much to him that I included his cat in the article. So that's obviously his accomplishments are many. He wrote The Invisible Gorilla, which was a bestseller in outside of the chess world, it's an important book, but yet he really is touched that I included his cat and him in that article. I will point out that my dog is black and white. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that, yes, I do, I do. I know from Facebook photos that she is, and so even though she can't be maybe quiet enough to be on a podcast, she at least represents chess every time you take her for a walk. There we go. <laughs> Now, uh, moving into 2017 and our November 2017 issue, uh, very timely as we're heading into another election season, uh, you wrote about chess and politics, and you, you, you describe various politicians who have chess backgrounds. Yes, and I think why I brought up chess and pets and chess and politics, and I think the next one we'll be talking about too, is I can, I have at least, tried to connect chess to pretty much anything out there in the world so I enjoy writing those type of articles because I like making those connections and and chess is a part of so many people's lives even if they their main focus is another career as it is now for Bob Ferguson who I played a chess match with when we were both 13 years old that was featured on the cover of Northwest Chess it was a battle of the sexes for 13 year olds which Bobby at the time, he was called Bobby Ferguson One, but he is now focused on being the Attorney General of Washington State. And just uh, because we're we're starting to run a little low on time, I'm going to move forward to December 2017, where, again, speaking to your point about you trying to connect chess to various activities, you wrote about chess and music, and um, one, one other notable aspect of this byline 
is for the first time another root appears on the pages of Just Life. So talk about this. Yes, uh, my co-author was my son, William Root, who has a degree in music education from University of North Texas. So together we wrote Chess and Music. And I'd also like to solicit input for your listeners for one more article. Can I do that now? Absolutely. Thank you. William Root and I, my son and I, are writing an article about chess and dance for Chess Life in 2020. And I am not a dancer, but William has been studying ballroom, swing, folk dance, Latin, different partnered dances over the last year and a half now. And we're looking to write an article about people who are combining chess and dance or who see similarities between chess and dance. And I would love to hear from you. And maybe they could write to podcast at uschess.org about chess and dance and be featured in that article. Yep. And again, write, write to that address and I will forward on all responses to Alexi. And uh, you'll be helping us out tremendously for uh, our continuing to get quality um content in the magazines. So that, Alexia, that, that kind of covers the list that you had uh, provided me. What, and you, you've hinted at a couple of articles you've, you have coming up, the, the Panda Chess and Chess and Dance. Um, any other articles on the drawing board you want to share with our listeners? Those are actually, in, and I haven't yet gotten a yes about interviewing Dr. Martha Underwood and Beatrice Miller now for chess and disabilities. So that one I don't know if I'll get to write, but the two that you have mentioned about chess and dance and Panda Chess Academy and asking your listeners how they combine different ages at their chess clubs, those are definitely going forward. So those are the, the two I have in line, so to speak, with Melinda Matthews, the current editor of Chess Life. I have in the, I do want to say in the current Chess Life on uh, Chess Life magazine, I have an article about Chinese schools in chess and uh, national master Christopher Shen, who is the current U.S. junior champion, just won the U.S. junior open, was a great help with that, as was, and I'll probably say her last name wrong. Is it Annie Wang or Annie Wong? Wang. I, I think Wang is, at least that's well, how anyway, I always pronounce it. But as okay. you know uh, from being a listener, that I, I have a bad history of uh, pronunciation of just player names. Well, I, I do too, because I'm a writer. And so if I'm writing these names, I don't have to say them out loud. And just a quick funny story. Recently, I had the chance to meet Nigel Short. And I told him, hey, for chess base, I wrote about Grandmaster Keith Arkell and Grandmaster Danny Gorbally. And he said, you mean Keith Arkell and Denny Gormali? And I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I had been, I didn't even know I was mispronouncing those names because I interviewed both of them via email and I had never heard their names. But apparently I was saying in my mind, both of them completely wrong. Well, that story could have been much worse because you could have mispronounced Nigel Short. Yeah, I don't know if I could have messed that one up. <laughs> <laughs> that one seems easier to me, but I, apparently Arkel is wrong. It's Ar- Arkel. And Gormali, which is how it looks to me, is Gormali. So live and learn. And I, I hope that those who I mispronounce uh, just correct me, please. Okay. So I, 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 
Again, uh, since you've indicated you listen to all our shows, I'm, I'm not going to catch you off guard like I've caught most of the people I've posed this question to, but I've been closing all my podcasts this year in our as we're celebrating our 80th anniversary year of U.S. Chess, and that 80th birthday is coming up rapidly in December of this year. I am asking everybody, and I am now posing the question to you, what has U.S. Chess meant to you? I am ready for this question. And it's meant a chance to meet people of different ages and interact with them in meaningful ways. And I just mentioned Christopher Shen, who's a teenager in Columbus, Ohio. I wouldn't have the opportunity, except for writing for Chess Life, to email back and forth with this very bright and interesting young man. And really an interview, as I did with him, is just as much his writing as mine. He emailed me answers. So I'm listed as the author, but he was an incredible contributor to that article, as was Annie Wang. So the chance to get to meet people of different ages, now I'm the old person and I'm getting to meet young people. But when I was starting chess as a nine-year-old at the Lincoln Chess Club in Lincoln, Nebraska, I remember how important it was for me to be assigned as a tandem chess partner to Anton Sildmans, who I thought of as an old man. He's probably about my age now, but he was a great player in Lincoln. And we were they had come up with this creative uh, t- alternating move, non-consultation, tandem handicap speed chess tournament where they assigned older players with younger players and we were a team and I I still remember that all these years later so just the chance that U.S. Chess has given me to meet and interact in a meaningful way with people of different ages has been amazing I mean not just playing them over the board but collaborating with them Well, wonderful answer. And Alexi, it's been a real fun trip down memory lane with you. Uh, It's been wonderful working with you uh, uh, as an editor and writer for these last almost 14 years now. So thank you for all you've been doing for U.S. Chess. Thanks for continuing to bring great stories to us. Thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to One Move at a Time. Our theme music was composed by Alex King, a national master who lives in Memphis, Tennessee. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit with an educational mission. You can find more information about us at uschess.org, where you can become a member by clicking on the Join button, and you can donate to our cause by clicking on the Donate button. I hope that you have learned something new about how to build chess within your community. Join us next month for another Chess World personality and more good ideas.